Hello, this is Dean Hess, Managing Editor of Respiratory Care. We are pleased that this month's podcast is sponsored by Massimo. Massimo is helping clinicians and care teams provide excellent care for their patients, both in the hospital and at home. With advanced monitoring parameters and powerful connectivity tools, Massimo offers a range of hospital and home-based solutions designed to support chronic care management, surge capacity efforts, and more. Whether inside or beyond the hospital, Massimo's remote monitoring solutions and hospital automation platform help providers seamlessly manage multiple patients simultaneously, providing data to help them identify when intervention may be required. Visit Massimo.com to learn more. And now let's hear about what's in the January issue of the journal. Hello, and welcome to the January 2022 Respiratory Care Editor's Commentary and Podcast. This is Rich Branson. I'm Editor-in-Chief of Respiratory Care. This month's Editor's Choice is a bench study evaluating the transnasal aerosol delivery during high-flow nasal cannula. Lee and colleagues determined drug delivery to a filter positioned in a simulated trachea of a mannequin. They varied the type of high-flow nasal cannula device, high-flow nasal cannula circuit, and position of either a vibrating mesh nebulizer or small volume nebulizer in the circuit. They reported greater drug delivery when the nebulizers were placed at the humidifier and the vibrating mesh nebulizer outperformed the small volume nebulizer. Bivon and others evaluated bronchodilator delivery, in this case salbutamol, via high-flow nasal cannula in subjects with an exacerbation of COPD. Using a crossover design, 15 subjects had pulmonary function tests performed during high-flow nasal cannula alone, and again with high-flow nasal cannula with salbutamol via vibrating mesh nebulizer. The primary endpoint was the change in FEV1, and secondary endpoints included changes in forced vital capacity, peak excretory flow, airway resistance, and other clinical parameters. Following nebulization of salbutamol, there were small but statistically significant increases in FEV1, forced vital capacity, and peak expiratory flow. Saunders and Davis consider both these studies in an accompanying editorial and provide insight into the role of aerosol therapy during high-flow nasal cannula. They also note that transnasal delivery of certain drugs, specifically vasodilators, have the risk of absorption into the nasopharynx and systemic drug accumulation. The study by Lee is, of course, just a simulation and further research needs to be done in, in a clinical environment. But it's clear the simplicity and comfort associated with delivery of drugs via high-flow nasal cannula systems is here to stay. Drogi et al. measured serum tobramycin concentrations in mechanically ventilated subjects receiving inhaled tobramycin for ventilator-associated pneumonia. They categorized 52 subjects as having detectable or undetectable serum tobramycin concentrations in monitored subjects for acute kidney injury. Detectable serum tobramycin was found in 66% of subjects and was associated in those patients with higher PEEP, older age, and higher serum creatinine before treatment. Nine subjects went on to develop acute kidney injury, which was associated with a greater severity of illness. They concluded that at-risk patients should receive serum monitoring to prevent unintended injury. This work is from my hospital and where we have continued to give 
inhaled tobramycin using the IV drug to patients at risk for acute kidney injury, which include trauma patients who already suffered hypotension and ischemia and also the addition of a contrast load in, a, in the CT scanner. Um, the use of aerosolized antibiotics remains controversial. Don contributes an accompanying editorial discussing the complicated nature of aerosolized antibiotics and the search for a clinical indication. He also notes that we may have to change the dosing of the drugs with these more um, successful and efficient vibrating mesh nebulizers. Krasuski et al. evaluated pressure injuries and in infants receiving non-invasive ventilation following implementation of a multifaceted skincare bundle. This quality improvement study evaluated pressure injuries prior to the initiation of a new NIV guideline, which increased the risk, the use of non-invasive ventilation, and after NIV guideline implementation, as well as following the skincare bundle. Following increased use of NIV, there was a significant increase and the number of pressure injuries. After introducing, introduction of the skincare bundle, this multifaceted, multidisciplinary approach reduced pressure injuries by 79%. Al Hashimi and others performed a retrospective cohort study of a decannulation protocol in tracheostomy subjects over a two-year time frame. Over half the subjects failed capping on multiple attempts and remained tracheostomized. A third of subjects were successfully decannulated. The median time to decannulation was 47 days. Predictors of long-term tracheostomy were reduced mental status, greater than two more comorbidities, and female sex. McCoy and colleagues developed a tracheostomy care simulation program for caregivers of tracheostomized children. The simulation included four emergency scenarios, accidental tracheal tube dislodgement, plugging, cardiac arrest, and ventilator failure. Following participation in the program, caregiver knowledge, confidence, and comfort levels increased. They concluded that medically fragile patients with tracheostomy require caregiver education with a focus on responding to emergencies. Oliveira et al. prospectively evaluated 66 subjects with COVID-19 receiving non-invasive respiratory support, including oxygen therapy, high-flow nasal cannula, and non-invasive ventilation during awake-prone positioning. Subjects were divided into responders and non-responders, a 20% increase in PO2 FO2 ratio defined a responder before and after the maneuver. Responders showed an increase oxygen saturation, PaO2, and PF ratio with the maneuver and reduced respiratory rate. Responders had shorter lengths of stay in the ICU and hospital, lower intubation rates at 48 hours, fewer days of ventilatory support, and lower mortality. Subjects who responded to the prone position had a 54% reduction in the risk of intubation and prolonged hospital stay in the ICU. This is important work as there's been a lot of retrospective data that's been collected. And in this case, they were able to look at this in a prospective fashion. Doors and others evaluated the Ottawa COPD risk scale to predict short-term serious adverse events among patients in the emergency department with COPD exacerbations. They studied 246 subjects who had a hospitalization rate of 52% and experienced serious adverse events at the rate of 19%. They found that the Ottawa COPD risk scale did not reliably predict serious adverse events in this population. Three risk factors were associated with 30-day serious adverse events. The initial triage PCO2, the Carlson comorbidity index, 
and hospitalization within the previous year. They suggest development of a score that's more reliable in a U.S. population. Espersen et al. evaluated lung ultrasound scores in 215 subjects with COVID-19, evaluating eight lung zones. Images were analyzed offline, blinded clinical variables, and outcomes. 136 or 81% of subjects had pathologic lung ultrasound score findings in greater than one zone. Lung ultrasound findings and score did not differ significantly between subjects with the composite outcome and those without, and they were not associated with outcomes in unadjusted and adjusted logistic regression analysis. They concluded that pathologic findings on lung ultrasound score were common at a median of three days after admission. It did not differ among subjects who experienced the composite outcome of the incidence of ARDS, ICU admission, all-cause mortality compared to subjects who did not. We've seen a lot of studies about chest x-rays and lung ultrasound trying to predict which patients with COVID-19 will do, will do better or avoid intubation. And, and to date, like this study, um, has not come to fruition. Andrew and coworkers compared two extubation techniques, continuous endotracheal suction during endotracheal tube removal and positive pressure during endotracheal tube removal at extubation. The multi-center randomized controlled trial evaluated major complications post-extubation defined as clinical evidence of significant desaturation, upper airway obstruction, or vomiting. In a study of 725 subjects, 26% exhibited at least one major complication. There were no differences between groups. They concluded that both techniques may be used safely during extubation in critically ill adults. Q and others provided a narrative review on ergonomics and personalization of non-invasive ventilation face masks. They suggest guidelines for mask selection and troubleshooting during mask use, as well as ergonomic approaches including fans anthropometry, sizing systems, mask design, evaluation, and personalization. Pavlov and others provide a systematic review of awake-prone positioning in subjects with acute hypoxemia with COVID-19. They found a consistent improvement in oxygenation, but no change in the requirement for endotracheal intubation. The study heterogeneity of the studies in this meta-analysis complicates these findings. We also published an AARC clinical practice guideline covering the management of oxygen in adult patients in acute care, authored by Tom Priano and the guideline committee. The group from Cleveland Clinic provides a special article on patient-ventilator interactions and how to interpret ventilator waveforms, which includes a new taxonomy for describing asynchrony, asynchrony events. We appreciate your subscribing to the podcast and look forward to speaking with you over the rest of this year. Thank you. To receive the content of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There, you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.